The Theonauts, episode 65, the one where we read the end of the book. The Theonauts Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's Word. Hello, all you Theonotheads out there. I'm David Gaddy, and you are listening to the Theonauts. Today, I have special guest with us, Brian Gadawa. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, David. Yes, Brian is a novelist and screenwriter. We've had him on the show a couple of times and really enjoy your work, Brian. And I'm really thrilled to be talking with you again. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. So what's going on in your life right now? Well, (laughs) I'm busy developing the next two series of novels. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah! Oh, series of novels, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're kind of all in the vein of Chronicles of the Nephilim, in fact. And uh, you know, you got a good thing; you just keep it going. And um, and it's sort of one is going to be a sequel to it, and the other is going to be a prequel, kind of. Uh-huh. So it's uh, well, I don't know if I'd say prequel because, of course, the Chronicles of the Nephilim, you know, cover a, a lot of portion of the Bible, but. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm already mapping out the the two new series and working hard on research for it and loving it. Oh wow! Well, we were recording this for me pretty late. I think this is ten o'clock Central Standard Time, and uh, because you're on the West Coast, right? I am. It's eight. It's only eight o'clock for me. <laughs> yeah, so you're just chilling, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, and once again, Jeremiah is not here. He is uh, he is is busy with his new job trying to to uh, get his head above water, but uh, we should have him back uh, soon. Uh, School has started, and he is getting his lesson plans all figured out. But uh, anyway, let's do a little news. And now, the news. So just a couple of news stories here today. And um, first off... Wes Craven passes away yesterday at age 76. Uh, wow. Did you hear that? No, I didn't, man. He's a master of horror. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, says that uh, yesterday Wes Craven passed away in Los Angeles. He was 76 and had been suffering from brain cancer. Uh, <sighs> in the past, the iconic director had taken the helm of a segment of the um, the francophile friendly film uh paris jetain and music of the heart but his legacy lies in the revitalization of the horror film genre uh having directed films like nightmare on elm street scream and the house on the left the house on the left last house on the left but perhaps uh the truest frightening thing of all is living in a world without his cinematic genius Craven is credited as the executive producer on MTV's Scream reboot TV show. Uh, the forthcoming 10th episode will be dedicated in his honor. So uh, I don't know about you, Brian, but uh, man, when I was in high school, Nightmare on Elm Street was like the scariest thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when I was a kid, the original Nightmare on Elm Street came out, actually. So, <laughs> Well, me too. <laughs> that's oh, yes, what, that's so you're, you're as old as I am then, huh? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I always get to uh, I get to rag on Jeremiah for uh, being just a young squirt, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I I was um, I was a fan way back way back in the day, and I still remember the first time I saw Scream because it totally blew me away. Um, and you know, you, you being in the in the movie industry too, uh, I mean, I, I had uh, I had studied in college some film and we did a course on genre. Um, and the whole thing was we we were talking about icons of genre and this sort of thing. And one thing that really impressed me about scream was that the whole point of it was break the icon, break the genre. 
and uh, and and so anyway, I just remember that being very groundbreaking because it didn't follow the traditional horror film, um, you know, model. And yeah, no, that's that definitely it, it kind of set a new model for horror, actually. And, uh, you know, what's so funny is uh, horror, traditional horror is, you know, like going back to the Victorian era, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein and all that. You know, it actually has Victorian origins in some ways. And, mm-hmm. of course, horror has been going on throughout all of history. Uh, the Bi- There's horror in the Bible. The Book of Revelation is a horror uh, epic. But um, uh, what's so fascinating is that there's actually some moral principles in traditional horror. Uh, and breaking those is not always a good thing. For example, you know, I think that there is a strong emphasis on um, the notion of like the virgin is the one who survives in a horror movie. You know, she's not the one that takes the drugs or has sex. Correct. And think about think about that. You know, these kids are have, all having sex, and they're the ones that are 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 dying. And in a sense, that's a very traditional morality, isn't it? It really is. Uh, but Scream in violating that that sort of ruins it in, in some ways, <laughs> and it sort of created a new you know genre of horror where now that was no longer as applicable. But it's funny because in other ways. He he circled back and re, you know and maintained some of the same genre elements you know right they were just playing with it and being sort of tongue in cheek you know but it really did it really made a lot of horror more self aware which was kind of good for a while but yeah yeah well and it's always good from a viewer's standpoint whenever you're expecting something and it doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. And, but and, you know, yeah, that that, that was problem, the point. You know, the, I think. Yeah, the problem with Hollywood is that it's always doing that. It it always has to be different, even with good things. You know, and well, let's <laughs> not do the good things. Let's do something bad. You know? <laughs> right. So, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. So, um, next news item I have here is, uh, you know, all this news has been going around about Ashley Madison uh, and the the leak on their website, which released you know like. 30 million accounts out into the wild. Um, they are now claiming that, um, that their site is still growing, that this is not hurting their business. Um, yeah. The owner of avid life media, the company that owns the online infidelity service, Ashley Madison says the affair website is growing rapidly, even though hackers recently stole and release, uh, release data from more than 30 million accounts. Uh, just days after the business CEO resigned, the company released a statement claiming that it gained hundreds of thousands of new accounts in recent days, adding, last week alone, women sent more than 2.8 million messages within our platform. They also boasted that despite the hack, Ashley Madison is the number one service for people seeking discreet relationships. Um, that says a little bit about... The decline of civilization. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely does. Whenever you- I don't know. That's, that's still, it's still hard to believe, though. I mean, you know, because not even about the morality issue of it, but just, you know, those people who want to maintain their privacy after that kind of a major leak, that's hard to believe. It sounds like they're they're lying for the purposes of, you know, promotion. And in this day and age, it you know, advertising doesn't matter if it's a lie or not, you know? Right. Well, that's true. I mean, and, and who's to say, I mean, if the... You don't, you don't really expect a company that does this to be morally upfront with you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly about, about their stuff uh, because it's uh, because this is their 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 business. And I've heard that there are um, several class action lawsuits now uh, that have been filed against them. One of them, in particular, was like five hundred twenty-eight million dollars. Um, wow. So yeah, they're they're getting nailed uh, by people all over the place. There's been a couple of guys up in Canada committed suicide over the leak. Um, yeah, I heard about that. So I mean, the, it, to me, this is a huge news item. Um, not necessarily because, it, well, for one, it shows us up front the consequences of sin. Ir- ir- you know, regardless of your Christian affiliation. There is, <laughs> there is a, a, um, there is a repercussion to, to our sinful, uh, actions. And obviously 
um, it's been devastating to a lot of people. Um, I know uh, Josh Duggar's been in the news about all this, and yeah, and you know that has been damaging to his family. Uh, obviously, it's not Ashley Madison's fault. It's 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 our fault for keeping Ashley Madison in business. Yeah, um, but anyway, um, interesting things uh, happening in the world that are just. Uh, sometimes mind blowing of how how far we've gone, um, but uh, some slight good news here. Uh, Christian movie War Room was the number one new film at the at the box office this weekend, um, which is a faith based movie. It had a, a big weekend at the box office, even though for the third week in a row the musical biopic Straight Out of Compton was America's number one draw, bringing in thirteen point two million. It was closely followed by the latest from Christian filmmakers, the Kendrick Brothers, uh, War Room, which cost just $3.5 million to produce, brought in $11 million, uh, beating out Owen Wilson's No Escape and Zac Efron's We Are Your Friends to become the weekend's biggest new movie. Uh, like the filmmakers' other movies, including Facing the Giants, Fireproof, and Courageous War Room, uh, was mostly panned by critics. Uh, it only had a 29% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but managed to draw in large Christian audience, audiences when it hit theaters. Um, I'm kind of torn about these type of movies. <clears throat> I, I don't know how you feel, uh, Brian. I, I see it as a victory because because um, there's a war against Christianity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I see it as a victory there. I I have watched all of of um the Kendrick Brothers films. Uh I do think they keep getting better. Um agreed. And but there is also but there's also this genuineness about it. Uh a lot of faith-based films just aren't good at all, period. Um but but I do think that at least there is some lighthearted genuineness in these films that I that does draw me to them. Um yeah, I hear you. I and I I kind of feel similarly. You know, I I don't really care for them. I don't. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't really care for them, and they haven't really been inspiring to me. But I do realize there's a place for them, and these guys. I tell you what, I, I can't deny they certainly have tapped into a uh, a market of interest that Christians want. And you know, the good the good thing about their their version is. You know, I think they're do- <laughs> they're doing what I call a manly Christianity. You know, like they're trying to they're trying to really promote a faith that's real, robust, and also for men, not just for wimps or metrosexuals. You know, <laughs> which is what our world has become. And, right. and that's what I that I really I really relate to. I mean, I really appreciate that about them, and uh, more power to them in that sense. Yeah. I just want them to get better acting, better writing, better storytelling, and all that. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I'm in, I'm hoping to see the movie because you know it looks like it's it is better, and um, you know I, I want to support stuff that that you know does the right thing. Well, and and one thing about these movies to me to me they are. Christian movies for Christian people. I mean that, yeah. that although they preach like they and so it's almost like they don't really know where they fit in because yeah. If you're going to preach so much, your your it sounds like your target audience is the lost. But these movies won't appeal to the lost, I don't no. think. Uh, no, it, because for one, the 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 quality and and unless you are endearing to the Christian message, that quality is going to get in the way. Um, and, and, but I, I just think that in general, um, we just need to make, Christians just need to make good films. Um, this is a, one of the things that Jeremiah and I have talked a lot on the show about is that, you know, art doesn't have to be labeled Christian art to be wholesome and entertaining and uplifting and, um, and have a godly message. Um, it, I mean, and, and, but we have get gotten into a place where we feel like it has to be labeled Christian. Otherwise I'm not going or, yeah. you know, a lot of Christians think in, in those terms, but, you know, um, I had some, we were interviewing some, um, 
a recording artist, Christian recording artist in here one time, and we were talking about the same thing because it's the same thing in the music industry. Um, and we were like, well, think way back, you know, to Handel's Messiah. Was Handel a Christian artist? <laughs> you know, no, he produced, he just produced music and Messiah was a, was a, a had a Christian theme, but yeah, that didn't make it. Christian music. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's no doubt. I mean, I won't deny, again, I, I think the Christian genre has a lot of problems with it, you know, um, uh, not the least of which is a preachy, preachy mentality, but that's what some Christians really want because they don't understand story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I won't deny that there's also a, there is a very specific bigotry and Christ against Christians, a Christ of what I call Christophobia in our society that you just can't. I mean, I look, I've seen movies that are just as preachy as these Christian movies, secular movies, you know, like oh, Matt Damon, yeah, like a Matt Damon movie on you know, on 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 uh fracking and you know, all this kind of stuff, yes, or George Clooney movies, you know, and you don't <laughs> see people talking about them how preachy and pedantic and uh, you know, uh, those are, and they're just as bad because of it, you know, yeah. so. That's the other thing. I, I feel like, you know what, I'm on their side in the sense of, you know, there, there, there is a persecution of Christianity that's been growing in this country. And, of course, with recent political events of the Supreme Court and such, um, it's, it's growing and Christians are hated. And so uh, some of that attack, I think, a, a significant portion of the attack is just God-haters. Yes. You know? they're, well, they're not going to like anything no matter how good it is if, if God's in it. And and you know uh, I often tease um, my friend uh, uh, Brendan over at the Finding Christ in Cinema uh, podcast that uh, about Avatar because he loves Avatar. But Avatar oh. Avatar was a preachy movie. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it was totally preachy. Which, by the way, I liked Avatar too. It was a great story, and it was preachy. In my opinion, it. By the way. Being preachy is not always bad, and sometimes it can work well. Yeah. Uh, but but one thing I got to grant James Cameron, he's probably the world's best storyteller. So, yeah, in the hands of any other person, that movie would have been a pile of junk because <laughs> it, it was so preachy. But right. you can't deny that he 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 tells a good story. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of in the middle on that one. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that the that the, this movie's doing well. Uh, I'll still support it. I'm still 100 percent behind it. I, I, I just I, I do think that that Christians need to branch out a little bit, you know, uh, artistically. Um, Absolutely. Because yeah, you know, there's some uh, there's an argument I heard one time that I think is is really true. Is as Christians, we're so intent on getting the message right that we're missing the beauty in it. That's exactly right. Right. That's exactly right. We prioritize, Christians prioritize message over medium or message over craft. Right. So, and and really, truthfully, if you want to be Christian storytelling, you must imitate the incarnation. The incarnation is both word and image. Mm -hmm. The word become flesh. And so what I say is you have to have equal value of beauty and um, of message, you know, of, of, of word, you know what I mean? Right. Word and image should be of equal priority. And whenever you deprioritize one, then that, that's when you create the garbage. Yeah. So, and that, by the way, that's why I would argue why, um, why Avatar, I think, is still brilliant because he really does. Nobody can beat him in terms of quality and, and excellence and storytelling. And he, uh, you know, preached his message. And so that's, that's why I think it's a good example of if you're going to preach, you better do it better than anybody else. <laughs> <to get laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Oh, by the way, and also preach a pagan message that the, the world loves to hear, which is Antichrist. That, <laughs> that will help you. <laughs> right. Ooh. evil history of Genesis, an ancient war began between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. Fallen angels called Watchers begot a race of giants called Nephilim, their goal, to stop the bloodline of the promised seed. But God had other plans. Chronicles of the Nephilim is a biblical fantasy series of novels that charts the rise and fall of the Watchers and the Giants in the stories of the Bible and in between.
Read all eight novels, from Noah Primeval all the way to Jesus Triumphant. Available on Kindle and paperback at Amazon.com. Go to ChroniclesofTheNephilim.com and enter a world of ancient history and biblical imagination. That's ChroniclesofTheNephilim.com. All right, so um, we we actually have you on the show today for a reason. <laughs> Besides the fact that Jeremiah is not here. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your 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 books. Primarily, uh, you have a new book that uh, just came out. Uh, it is out now, correct? Yes. Jesus Triumphant. It is book eight in a series called Chronicles of the Nephilim. Um, and so we've interviewed you a couple times before. We talked primarily the first time about Noah Primeval. Um, and then the second time we brought you on, we talked about, uh, I think it was book seven, David Ascendant. Yep. So um, let's, let's uh, catch our listeners up speed with uh with what 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 exactly is this story that you're that you're telling through the series of all these these books what what are we trying to what's going on here <laughs> yeah sure chronicles of the nephilim was inspired by, you know about 5 years ago by by studying I was writing, wanting to write a story about Noah, and I did did research, and I stunt, you know, I, the the Bible passage, the most weirdest Bible passage to me has always been Genesis six one through four, and that's where it says that um, you know man began to multiply in the face of the earth, and the sons of God, these heavenly beings, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took wives as many as they chose. And then it says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards when the sons of God mated with the daughters of man and they bore them children. And, and these were the Nephilim. And then the word Nephilim means giants, right? And, you know, this is one of those obscure passages that, you know, theologians uh, argue over for centuries. And, and um, you know, normally I just kind of like, well, you can't always understand things in the Bible, so just keep reading and, and you know, maybe things will come together. And things never really did. Um, but, but, you know, you, I would read, occasionally read other passages where there might be a reference to a giant. We all familiar with David and Goliath, right? He's right, a giant, right. but he, but he's not the only one. There's actually more references, but the problem is some of them are obscured unless you really do the research to find out that they're actually giant clans and such. But nevertheless, I, rather than seeing those as oddities, I, I was reading Michael Heiser's work and Michael Heiser, uh, his new book is out called The Unseen Realm. And he really talks all about this where you know, he explains the Nephilim and the sons of God and how these are angels that came from heaven and mated with humans. And, and you know, they basically were violating God. They were, they were violating God's image in man. They were, they were um, crossing the boundaries of heaven and earth. Angels would, were not supposed to mate with humans. And, and in so doing, they created these angel-human hybrids called the Nephilim, and they were giants as a result of that, that sort of supernatural human connection. Well, this is definitely weird. It's freaky. It sounds like it's myth and all that. But um, nevertheless, all cultures have this kind of talk and reference. Right. And uh, in just in different forms, of course. But, you know, rather than seeing myths in other, you know, in other um, cultures and such, rather than just seeing as man made this all up and then they borrowed it from each other, it's really not the case because there, there are these stories in, in cultures that are not connected. And so, I, you know, I, I did more study in it and it was fascinating to me because I discovered this storyline that I call the War of the Seed. Mm. And and basically what it is, is when you go back to the Genesis 3.15, where God's cursing the serpent in the garden, and he says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of Eve. Right. And she shall crush your head, you shall bite her heel. And this is a messianic, the first messianic promise of God that we know was fulfilled in Christ. Christ crushed the head of the serpent or Satan, right? And, but that's the end of the story. That's the revelation, right? And, and this is the <laughs> beginning. And what does that mean? And I think that the Nephilim are these, the Nephilim are part of this seed of the serpent that is, in a literal sense maybe, you know, um, but, 
But it, it extends beyond that into paganism and idol worship and such. And then you have the Tower of Babel after the flood and all that. But but the this this notion of the seed of the serpent at battle with the seed of Eve, which would ultimately bring forth Messiah. And so I think that part of the, you know, as I studied it, I, I became convinced that part of the reason that that the sons of God did that weird, bizarre thing was because they were trying to pollute the bloodline of the Messiah. Mm. You know, they thought Messiah would come through the seed <clears throat> of Eve, would come through a human, and in a sense, they were mimicking it, you know, because God, of course, puts his seed into the human, and so Jesus is both fully God and fully human, right? Well, right. they do a mimic, bastardized version of that, uh, and and anyway, so... Um, so you've got this war that goes through history, and that, that that's a battle that that the the seed of the serpent is always trying to wipe out the seed of Abraham, ultimately, right? Right. And so what I decided to do was I said, you know, this is such a fascinating storyline because it there's a lot of things been below the surface that we in our Western minds don't catch when we read the text because we don't we're not educated on the ancient Near Eastern mindset. And the more I study that ancient Near Eastern mindset, more of this stuff comes out and it makes more sense to me. And along with that comes the notion of the watchers. And the watchers, which show up in Daniel, we all read that in Daniel 4 and uh, I think 7 and 10. And these watchers are these sons of God. And they're literally like spiritual authorities over nations, which is really strange as well. Where did that come from? Well, the other element that I discovered was... um, and again, through Heiser's work, you read Deuteronomy 32. And in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, you read how at the Tower of Babel, God said, God separated the nations and the languages, right? Right. And he said, and, and he placed them under the authority. He gave them as allotments to the sons of God, according to the number of the sons of God. But Jacob, he kept for himself. <laughs> and the basic notion here is a common ancient Near Eastern notion that... Um, nations and the authorities, human authorities of nations were under the authority of some spirit beings or gods. And, you know, Deuteronomy talks about this same notion. And I think that if you study it, you'll see that it's basically the fallen sons of God. So these are bad guys. So basically, basically, yeah, because we get that, we get that little instance there in Daniel where you, it's always been like a mysterious passage where um, where the angel comes to Daniel and says, well, before I got here, I was delayed because I was battling this prince of Persia. Exactly. And, and the, the word prince of Persia is a supernatural prince, correct. a supernatural leader. Yeah. Correct. And then he's like, and then whenever I leave here, I've got to go contend with the prince of Greece. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just like, and if you know your history, we know that, okay, Persia conquered Babylon, Greece conquered Persia, so it all ties in. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. So well, this goes. In my opinion, this goes back to Babel. Then, where so the principle is that God's saying, "Look, at when people after the flood, you'd think he starts over. You think man would be good, but he isn't. He continues to be evil. Continues to worship false gods. So God gives them over. Romans one, He mm. gives them over to their mm-hmm. evil, and He says, "Okay, if you're not going to worship me, I'm going to place you under the authority of the false gods that you're worshiping." But these false gods. And I, I ask myself, you know, the way the Bible talks about false gods, it's not, it's not as if they don't exist. There's a lot, of, a lot of passages that speak about them as real, as demons even. And so I said, well, what if these gods of the nations, these ancient gods, you know, every, they're a pantheon of gods, uh, wh- whether it's the Greek Zeus and, and, and you know, um, uh, Mercury and all that, you know, all the way to the Mesopotamian Sumerian pantheon of gods. They all had pantheons of gods where each of the cities or nations had their own god that was their patron deity, right? right. This concept was very popular, is my point. And, and I said, well, what if those gods were real beings, but they were the sons of God? And that they were masquerading as gods in order to draw worship away from Yahweh, the true God, as they were trying to pollute the bloodline of Messiah and, and take control. And God said sort of like, okay, I'm just going to give you over. They're going to be, they're going to be your inheritance, but I'm going to keep one nation for myself. Jacob, the, the, ultimately the seed of Abraham, is going to be his inheritance, his allotment, and his land will be Canaan. 
But, he, but in order to get Canaan, he's going to have to dispossess those gods and take <laughs> it away from them. Right. So, so this was this notion that I started seeing how it goes throughout the whole Old Testament. So I, I decided I want to retell the Bible stories that have Nephilim or giants in them, because that's something no one's ever done before. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to show how these aren't just obscure passages or strange anomalies of giants that show up in history. They're actually connected to this storyline of the War of the Seed. And that is basically, you know, these are part of the bad guys trying trying to wipe out God. So by the time we get to Joshua and the Promised Land, we all know the story about, right, the spies who go in and they come back all frightened saying, ah, the land's full of giants. Yeah. And the giants are called the Anakim. And it says that the Anakim are related to the Nephilim. <laughs> and guess what? The only other place in the Bible where the word Nephilim is used is Genesis 6. So he, the author is literally connecting those giants in the land of Canaan to the original bad guys in Genesis 6 that God wiped out with a flood. But somehow, in some way, we could talk about that later, but yeah. they, they, they survived it. And, and so the point is, Joshua's coming to land. He has to get rid of all those bad guys, the bad giants, the bad seed of the serpent, the Nephilim, or at that time, they're called the Anakim. And then mm-hmm. that's how you come to realize all, well, the, all the giant clans that are going on there. And this is, this is something that we've actually discussed on the show quite a bit here lately. Uh, our listeners may be getting tired of it. I don't know, <laughs> but but it's always been a fascinating thing to me. And uh, one of the the big questions that had come up, you know, it comes up for people all the time, especially non-believers uh, who want to discredit uh, following God at all, because uh, they want to always pull out these verses about uh, where God says, "Destroy them all, kill the children, kill everybody," and and then they were like, "Well, you know, I can't follow a God like that." But if we look closely at the text, these people he's saying to wipe out completely, they, you can tie them all back into the, the bloodline of uh, Cush and Canaan. And these guys, yeah, these guys that had uh, obviously had been carrying this, um, this genetic abnormality. Um, and so God's idea about wipe them all out wasn't just because he didn't like them, but because they were, uh, they were abnormal. They weren't fully human. Right. Now I, I don't think it's just genetic, by the way, I do believe a lot of a lot of the seed of the serpent is also religious. So, meaning you know that they were they were engaged in the worship of false gods, and these gods were very cruel. You know, you read about in Leviticus how they would have their sons and daughters pass through the fire. There was a lot of incest, a lot of rape, right, and right. this kind of stuff. And God's saying, "Don't be like them," you know, but conquer them. And so you're right. The, the the getting rid of all those was not just this indiscriminate genocide. He only wiped out complete clans that had giants in them. He didn't do that to all of them. So it was very it was very specific. And it even says that in Joshua eleven. It says that Joshua hunted down all the Anakim and and you know um, uh, to get to get rid of them. But it says that he left some in Philistia. Guess what Philistia is? <laughs> the land of the Philistines, and guess what David had to wipe out? Yep. Goliath was a Philistine, and he wasn't the only giant. And we talked about that last time. Yeah. So you can see the storyline of these giants, right? But here's the thing. As I was telling the story, you know, uh, factually speaking, after, after David, there are no more giants that show up in, in the Bible. And, and so I said to myself, well, is that where it ends? You know, but as I did more study, I realized, oh, no, it's not where it ends because there are actually, I believe there, are, there is a reference to Nephilim in the New Testament. Now, here's, here's, you know, here's where I believe it is. But it's more than just the Nephilim. There's a lot of things. If Jesus is the messianic seed promised in, in Genesis, well, then, of course, the seed of the serpent's going to be fighting all the way up to the end, right? So, right. so when Messiah enters the land, there's... there's some weird things that are going on that I think are explained in the context of this storyline. And that's what Jesus triumphant is all about. So let me just sort of, you know, cool. Bring your, bring your listeners into that, into that story. Number one, here's where the Nephilim connection is. Now in the, in the Bible, if, if you notice demons are evil spirits. And when people, when you say demons, what are they? Well, people think fallen angels, right? 
Mm-hmm. No, I don't think they are. Right, I don't I think agree. the Bible makes that connection at all. There's a difference between an angel and a, fa- and a spirit or a fallen spirit. If you look at the Bible, the angels, <clears throat> they are spiritual beings, but they're not spirits. They're actually beings with Bodies. some kind of material. Yes, some kind of material body. Now, it's heavenly flesh. It's not the same as human flesh, but it does it, it does have an overlap with us, right? Because it talks about angels eating food with Abraham. It talks about angels being able to have sex with humans <laughs> and give birth, right? So there is, there is a fleshliness about them. So they're not spirits in search of bodies. Evil spirits are bodiless spirits. Correct. So the whole thing of angels is a different world of beings. So where what are these? Yeah, beings? this is one thing that, uh, that, that has been in my studies as well is that um, if you go all the way back and start reading uh, the Antonicene Fathers, uh, some of their writings, all of them are, are, are consistent about the origin of these demons of the New Testament. They, 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 all of them claim that they came from the disembodied souls of, the, of Nephilim. And that's where I'm getting to. Yeah. So when you when you um, when you get into the New Testament and you know the Old Testament, it, there's like one reference to evil spirits uh, taunting Saul, but there's no real possession other than that, and and there's really not much at all. And like, why don't why don't they talk about that? And then all of a sudden, here comes Messiah, right, Jesus, and he's casting demons out all over the place. And I used to think, what the heck is that? Where, <laughs> why is that? Just God showing how powerful he is, or I'm, I can prove I'm God because I have power over spirits. No, I think there's much more to it than that. And now I think I know what it is. Now, well, if that's problem. all it was, it, wouldn't, it wasn't good enough to convince because even the Pharisees were saying, well, he cast out demons in the name of Beelzebub. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. That's so. true. They were, they were even denying it. Right. But this is where, but the New Testament doesn't say anything about their origins or where they come from, but there is, a, like you said, there's a tradition rooted in the book of first enoch that says that the that demons are the spirits of the dead nephilim now uh, the book of first enoch's not scripture um, but it's also not heresy because if you look at the history of the christian church it had always been highly respected by church authorities only up until modern days um, or actually uh, augustine was the one who sort of um, uh, started the ball rolling about rejecting the whole sons of God and Nephilim right. thing. Um, and, and then it's in more recent years is when the book of first Enoch was, was more rejected. And, and, um, but interestingly, the new Testament itself quotes from the book of Enoch in Jude and in Peter and even draws from themes and paraphrases the book of Enoch. So if the, if the new Testament respects the book of Enoch, and we are Christians who have high regard for Scripture, then we should also respect the book of First Enoch. Now, like I said, I don't think it's Scripture, but it, it, I think we can go there to draw some possible truths. Mm-hmm. And one of those is, this does explain the demons. Why? Because think about it. If the, if the Nephilim are the seed of the serpent who have been battling Messiah all these generations, and they're finally wiped out by the time of David, but then all of a sudden Jesus comes, and if the demons are the spirits of the Nephilim, then that would make sense that that's the last stand of the Nephilim trying to get take down the Messiah, <laughs> and he's casting them out of the land of the of Cain of Israel, the promised land. Why? Because he's preparing it for Messiah to enter in and to to take his rightful allotment or his rightful inheritance, which is Canaan. See, so that makes at least that makes some good theological sense to me in a way right. that other Christian theories don't. <clears throat> yeah, that's really good. You know, one of the things that. Um, in my studies that I had not gotten to until I actually started reading some of your books and some of the, and some of uh, um, uh, of your peers and stuff of, of, of study is you know I'd always thought how the Nephilim story was really uh, cool pre-flood but yeah. I'd never really um, thought about it much post-flood and yeah. except for you know, there was always this, well, wait a minute, why are the, you know, it happening afterwards? And uh, it was just always an assumption. There must've been a second incursion, but I think that, you know, through the, the, the path that you've taken in the stories, which I think is probably pretty historically accurate on how it would have happened. 
instead of happening through some sort of second incursion, that it, it happened, you know, through um, genetics, through these genetic bloodlines. But- yeah, and you know what? Yeah, I know that there's a debate on that, and quite honestly, I'm kind of in the middle on it. Um, I think, no, I do actually. I think Rob Skiba made some good uh, arguments about why there was only one incursion, and that's possibly true. However, I do I have found hints in the Old Testament text that I think indicates that maybe there was more going on because it didn't say that it stopped in the Bible. Right. So therefore, uh, argument from silence is not, does not prove much. So True. you have to be, you have to be careful or you have to be whatever, cautious and open. And I am, but uh, so in, in my novels, I actually do try to provide for both theories. So, so yeah, depending on what, what side you take, you can find a little bit of both in there because my story of Sodom and Gomorrah actually brings in some more of that concept of, of sons of God yeah. mating with, with, but it's, it's done in a very localized, <laughs> fearful context because they know what happened the first time and all that. Right. Um, but, but nevertheless, I do think probably the, the notion of the genetic transference is probably the best the strong one of the stronger arguments um, for it, so I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, well, but you, like I said, either 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 way. Well, you know, um, just just to give everyone a, kind of a heads up, also, I've actually uh, I've been reading this series, um, I, and I actually I, I began it after we interviewed you uh, the first time. Uh, so I'm a slow reader, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so uh, I've read Noah Primeval. Um, uh, uh, what was Enoch? The Enoch? Enoch Primordial. Primordial, yes. And then uh, Gilgamesh Immortal. Is that yes. what? It is? And then uh, Abraham Allegiant. So I'm actually almost through Abraham Allegiant. Um, and I got to tell you, like, I-, I had actually had envisioned years ago doing almost this exact same thing, <laughs> like writing a antediluvial story. Uh, based on my studies on this stuff, but man, my studies didn't go near as deep as <laughs> as what yours had, and so this was really cool to, for me to read these books and and to to see Noah as a warrior and not necessarily a farmer. Uh, yeah, and and to, and then to go back in the second book, and uh, I'm a big fan of. Um, the hero's journey. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, that whole star Wars is my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> you know, yeah. th- this whole, um, this whole hero's journey pattern. I just love it. And I kept seeing this hero's journey stuff in both the Noah book and in the Enoch book. Yeah. Um, and it, it has hints of fantasy. Uh, it's, it's, you know, very reminiscent of books like uh, Lord of the Rings or uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and so anyway, those two books, you know, I really, I, I really, really enjoyed. And But then the, the Gilgamesh one was, uh, for me, uh, it was a great middle act. Uh, mm. So it's kind of like, okay, going back to Star Wars. It's kind of like the Empire Strikes Back for me, um, and the and the reason I say that is because well, um, is it doesn't have a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tragedy. It, it is a tragedy, uh, and what I think you did so beautifully in it, and and what's funny, I, I was reading. Uh, I'm a I'm a member of Goodreads, and so you know I've got all my library on there. I've been reading all of these comments that people have been making on on these books and one of the things uh the people i like to find those outliers you know with only yeah. two stars three stars whatever and see what they had to say and what the thing that people would complain about was was oh um i cared too much for this character ah. and then it had this tragic <laughs> I'm like, that, that's supposed to be that way brilliant that's to me that's what made that book so good was I liked Gilgamesh. <laughs> yeah. You you he started in a bad place. He found quasi redemption, you know, through his friend uh Enkidu. Yeah. yeah. And but then uh you know this tragedy occurs in his inability to come to grips with reality and truth. 
Yeah. And and, and th- that's what a tragedy is all about <clears throat> is, you know, as in Shakespeare, is that if you don't if you don't overcome every hero has a flaw, but if you don't overcome your flaw, then that's how you become a villain. And right. that's pretty much what, it's 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 breaking bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> really? It, right. Well, you know, and I find it interesting that um that my studies have coincided with my reading of your books. It's really weird because we just did an episode on Nimrod. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to throw out any spoilers, but my studies on Nimrod actually tied in really well with what you were telling in the storyline. Yeah. And then um and then I had just read the book of Jasher, and I start reading Abraham Allegiant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I drew a lot of – throughout the whole series, one of the things I do is I draw from a lot of ancient Jewish traditions and legends. And I know they're legends, um, but when you're filling in fiction between the lines of the Scripture, basically I want to stay true to the Bible, but fill in between the lines that we don't know with imaginative story that fits – and so I, I don't want to be original and make up stuff. I want to draw from the ancients. So I'm not very creative. I'm not very original because everything I take, I draw from ancient sources. And so the, that book of Jasher is, is one of those ancient sources that has a lot of this. It talks about Nimrod and Abraham and how they interact and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so I felt like, you know, um, yeah, draw, drawing from people who are far more brilliant than I, but my creativity lies in being able to take from all these sources, make them all fit together in a way that can help explain maybe mm-hmm. how things were ultimately connected, if at least spiritually. You know, and you you know, you mentioned the other thing about about how it's kind of like Lord of the Rings and some fantasy element. That's another you know, thing that I d- wanted to do for this series was I wanted to make these like action movies and Lord of the Rings movies. And people might think, oh, is that playing with the Bible? But no, it's not, because here's what I wanted to do. Here's what I did. I thought, I'll add a fantasy element, but what it will be is, it will be showing the spiritual reality that we don't normally see. Right. You know, so so that's what allows me to make, make these big monsters and demonic beings like the satyrs and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which are in the Bible, by the way, and they're in the Bible in very poetic terms. Correct. So, for example, you hear about you know, the Leviathan a lot, right? And some Christians think the Leviathan is a dinosaur, but if you study it, I'm convinced it's not at all. It's it's a sea dragon. It's literally a dragon of chaos. It's a symbol. It's a poetic symbol that all the ancient Near Eastern people used to, co- to communicate the belief that the world out there is a world of chaos, and our God comes in, conquers the sea dragon, you know, pushes the sea back, and creates his covenantal order. And the Jews are no different. And you read in Psalm 74, when God is parting the Red Sea and bringing Moses into the, the, his covenant, <laughs> it describes God as crushing the heads of Leviathan. Right. That's poetry, but, but it's very distinctly spiritual poetry. So I thought, well, I'll, make, I'll bring those things alive so I have a literal sea dragon called Leviathan in the story. Mm-hmm. But you can see how I'm just making – I'm showing the spiritual reality by using the fantasy element. Right. And people right. have – Christians have really understood and have really appreciated it. And that, by the way, that goes all the way up to the Jesus triumphant. I do the same thing. I show the gods of the nations as liter- So the Bible talks about the god Baal, right? He's the storm uh-huh. god. Bible talks about Asherah. She's the god that goddess that, that the, you know, the Israelites fell away and would worship these false gods. Well, I actually have those beings as real beings that, you know, uh, in the story that are the, the spiritual reality. I'm showing them as the spiritual. So when people are worshiping these, these false gods, I show them actually in the temples and they're, they're, they're having their, it's like, kind of like the mafia. Mm-hmm. I, they have their goals that are part of the storyline just like everybody else and their bad guy goals. Right. And so that's, that's what I do throughout. And so by the time I get to Jesus triumphant, the notion of the Messiah is that he comes and disinherits the nations so that he legally takes away their inheritance, right? Remember mm-hmm. how I said that these uh, nations are under the authority of these spiritual beings? Well, the Bible talks about how Christ has victory over the principalities and powers. Correct. That's what it, New Testament means. That's what Paul means. He's referring to those gods, those authorities. They believe that behind the Roman power of authority was a spiritual authority. So, so when there was a battle on earth, <clears throat> there was also a battle in the heavenlies. They were united. Mm. And so Christ comes and 
spiritually does spiritual battle, spiritual warfare with these beings, takes away their authority, and and he inherits the land of Canaan. So I actually bring that into the storyline in a very powerful way. I've, I have angels and I have spiritual battles and all this. And I even have where Jesus goes down into Hades. First Peter, First Peter three eighteen. Another right. controversial passage, but one legitimate interpretation is he goes out down into Hades to proclaim his triumph to who? To the spirits who are bound in prison at the days right. of Noah. Mm-hmm. So this is all linked. See, and so those those authority, those original fallen authorities, not all of them were bound, but m- most of them were bound, and and. He goes down there to proclaim his triumph over them, and he goes to Abraham's bosom to free those who, during the days of the Old Testament, right? So mm-hmm. it's this the- theological, some people think it's just a theological statement, but I said, I'm going to make it literal, and because I still see it as truthful. Right. And uh, whatever view you take, literal or spiritual, I'm showing the spiritual reality of Jesus going down into Hades, conquering death and conquering uh, the you know proclaiming the triumph and then he leads his you know the Bible talks about how he, lead, he when he ascends to heaven he leads in a train of captives so I I tell all that in my storyline in that spiritual reality well, and the cool well, thing is it because it's because it's fiction it is it is open to allegory yeah so you don't have to be a hundred percent physically accurate in it yep I mean, what you're what you're talking about you know, by taking and making Leviathan physical and making uh, the trip to Hades, you know, exactly what it says and literal uh, is okay. You're just being as allegorical as the text is. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, absolutely. And and for those who talk about how they take the Bible literally, okay, well then. Go ahead, believe it's literal. I mean, right. you know, there, there's room, and and quite frankly, I'm I'm saying that there's room for a variety of interpretation. But we all agree on the spiritual meaning. Hopefully, that mm-hmm. Christ has victory over the prince, you know, the 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 false gods of the nations, etc. And that's what this is communicating. And and so I really think people are really taking a shine to it. You might be worried, going, "Oh, is that?" Boy, is he playing with the story of Christ? Well, I did extensive research. Again, everything in my story is based on, excuse me, is based on actual, you know, respectable, whether it's legends or interpretations or what have you. Right. And I fill in between the lines of of Jesus's last years of ministry. I start the story with his temptation in the desert with the Satan, and um, <clears throat> people. I don't know if people know this, but uh, Satan has many names, and right. one of them is Belial. In in the New New Testament, he's called Belial by the Apostle Paul. Uh-huh. So uh, he takes that name Belial in my story, and he's the. He, through the through the beginning of the temptation of the desert, as Satan interacts with Jesus, you it, it kind of the novel can be read as a standalone novel because you get a lot of that explanation in the very first chapter about all the stuff that went before. Now the reality is is you won't have as much appreciation for the depth because if you read the series, you're going to love this climax in mm-hmm. Christ. But if if you just want to read the Jesus triumphant, you can still appreciate it and enjoy it as a standalone novel. Um, so so yeah, so it starts with that, and then it goes all the way to his crucifixion, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and. Um, and then it ends. It ends with a sort of a postscript on, um, or an epilogue, on um, in the book of Acts. You know, with the, with Pentecost. And the reason why I do that is because Pentecost was a reversal of Babel, mm. and Babel is in my storyline. And what do I mean by that? Well, basically, you know, when they were going out and speaking in varied tongues, and all the men from all the nations, uh, what is Babel? Was God divides the nations oh, by wow. making them different languages, but in Pentecost, he brings back the nations by <laughs> having them speak the glory, the gospel of God in all those languages meant that God was undoing Babel, because from that point on, now that Christ had won victory, now the gospel could spread out into all the earth, whereas before, it was hampered because all the earth was under the authority of the sons of God, but now their authority's been taken away. Wow, that's, that's and, a really cool way 
of viewing yeah. Pentecost. I, and I, I, mean, I didn't make that up, by the way. This is, you know, deep scholars, far more smarter than me. I learned it from them. <laughs> it blew my mind. And that's, again, you, you're catching on to the same excitement that I said, I got to tell this story because I haven't seen this story told. And that's kind of, that's the heart of what's going on in Jesus triumphant. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of excited to get there. <laughs> But but I, I but I'm slowly getting there. I mean I mean I'm 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 making my way through it. Um, one thing that I, I wanted to to ask you about um, is I I know that at least some of some of our listeners are going to be very sensitive to some of your content, um, and I don't mean the fantasy stuff. I mean the yep. depravity, the violence, the there is a, especially I got to tell you, Abraham Allegiant yeah. is hard to read sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> there are places in it <laughs> where I'm like, I, I, yeah. I'm like Brian, TMI. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't need to know that. I mean, I get it. <laughs> I hear you. Let, let, no, that's a very good point to bring up, and, and thank you for bringing it up. Two things. One is. My principle of writing is storytelling is like the Bible where I want you you can your the 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 power of your redemption that you offer in your story is only equal to the accuracy with which you depict the depravity or the sin that you're redeemed from. Right. If you have cheesy television 1970s sin, then the redemption's not going to f- seem real or powerful. And the Bible really talks about a very wicked, like it says in the days of Noah, mm-hmm. it says that every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Right. And so I wanted to accurately depict how bad the world really was, and then and then the therefore the power of the redemption of God's redemption of God's gospel story throughout mm-hmm. the ages, that that will be that much more powerful. Now well, there is a thread. That, there's a thread of that in Noah and the Enoch book. Uh, Gilgamesh and Abraham Allegiant, I mean, it's like you can see the depravity getting yeah. worse and worse. I mean, we're definitely in the rated R area. <laughs> yeah, it definitely. And that's what I want to say was at times it, it, it becomes, it's a little R rated. Mostly it's PG-13, but at times it's R rated. And, um, uh, but um, that's my premise is because I believe that the Bible is R rated, actually. Mm, if you right. read that's uh, true. Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23, I just... <laughs> Dare you to read that to your children. No, 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 no. I know that chapter. <laughs> we, <laughs> Jeremiah and I have actually laughed about. Because <laughs> yep. depending on the version you read, yep. that can get uh, pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, and the original Hebrew is 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 far more explicit than those English translations. <laughs> so, okay, so that's my that's my argument for why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it to, to exploit or to be uh, gratuitous. Right. I really deeply believe that you need to show this world is very... I, I believe the world we live in is very evil, and a lot right. of the evil is hidden. So I want to expose the evil, bring it to light, like Philippians 2 says, mm. you know? Um, bring well, it yeah, into the light. And, and to get our listeners to thinking about what type of stuff we're talking about. I mean, think about what happens like in your, in the Abraham Allegiant novel, you have the tower of Babel yep. and all the evil that was working in and around that situation. Yep. Um, you have Sodom and Gomorrah. Yep. And we all know what kind of evil and, and uh, depravity was happening in that situation. So yep. you can imagine um, we're dealing with evil things. I mean, th- we're dealing with parts of the Bible that talk about, uh, it, I mean, if we think, uh, how many times have we sat in a Bible study and someone goes, lots given away as daughter to these yeah. miscreants? What kind of person does that? Well, yeah. the kind who has been inundated with this evil. And, yes. <laughs> and so it's... It, you definitely do a, a very uh, uh, visual job now, of, I, uh, of argue- letting us know how how evil these people are. Yeah. Now, my argument is that I don't go. I don't think I go any further than the Bible does at times because the Bible is explicit at times, not always. Correct. But um, that's my argument. You may not agree with me, and some people don't. But most everybody has understood and appreciated what I'm doing with that. However, here's the good news: if you are a sensitive soul. Um, I, I wanted to. I wanted to reach 
everybody. And if you are a sensitive soul about sex and violence and language and stuff like that, I've actually um, created a young adult version of the same of all the novels, Chronicles of the Nephilim for young adults. Wow! <laughs> and you can find that on Amazon, just al- along with the other version. It's very clear for young adults, and that basically it's completely safe for you know thirteen year olds and up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so I basically cut out that 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 extreme stuff, pulled a little bit back on the descriptions of even violence, and there's no language and there's no sex in there. Um, there might be a few hints here and there, but there's just nothing explicit. It's I've, it's very safe for even teens, for young adults, and um, so yeah. And people have been loving those as, uh, just as much who who are more a little bit more sensitive. And uh, so yeah, I think I think yeah. that's a you know it's been it's well, been real helpful. Well, I think you make a, a great point um, because we do want to see the brilliance of the redemption, and we yeah. we want we want that to be strong and and it's a good juxtaposition and uh i totally i totally get i'm absolutely i'm absolutely loving the books i mean i gotta be honest with you um i i really have uh no real complaints at all i mean the stories move at a great pace um you know it it hits all the things that i've studied it's like yep that's right yep Yep. <laughs> I read the book of Jasher. You're right on it. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, before we end, let's talk a little bit more about Jesus Triumphant because um, th- one of the things that I wanted to, 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 to ask you is how is this story told from what perspective? Uh, it's told from the perspective of uh, two people, right? Yeah, the the main characters are the thieves on the cross, and um, basically I, I depict them as brothers. And they're and one of the interesting things that that you'll note uh, is that you know the word thief, the thief on the cross, the word the original Greek word in the Bible is not the word thief as in like a kleptomaniac who steals a camel. You know the the reality is is you wouldn't get crucified for stealing. So, but the word there actually means revolutionary. And so, in fact, those thieves on the cross were zealot revolutionaries. They were Jews who were fighting against the Romans. And so the, um, I said, well, what would their be perception be? Because, of course, we all know one repented, one didn't. And I made them brothers, and I kind of tell a lot of the story from their perspective. And um, one of the brothers is a bestiarius. We don't really, you know, we don't really know anything about them. So I fill in between the lines. <laughs> right. I made one of them a bestiarius in the arena, which is uh, rather than a gladiator who fights other gladiators, this is a guy who gets paid. He's not a slave. He gets paid to fight wild animals in the in the arena. And but he's doing this because he's given up on life. The Romans have killed his whole family, taken his love away of his life, and he's bitter and wants to die, and he doesn't care if he lives. And his other brother is a an, an actor in the theater who plays Hercules, and so he knows how to fight more as an actor than anything. But you know, he's the guy who, because of his artistic ten- tendencies, he's c- kind of connected into the radicals who want to you know stand up against Rome, and he pulls his brother unwittingly into this revolution. And interestingly, they're all they're both pulled in by Barabbas, because Barabbas <laughs> is another character in the Bible. Right. Doesn't really say anything about him. But another thing that people don't realize or forget, there's one sentence that says that Barabbas was the, the leader of a failed insurrection in Jerusalem. That's why he was in jail with, with, during the time of Jesus, which means he was also a revolutionary who was leading an attempted uh insurrection that's fascinating to me so yes. i put all these guys together and their journey and you know basically barabbas is, is is you know maybe thinks he might even be the messiah right but he finds out about this nazarene going around galilee preaching about you know uh the kingdom of god and he wonders is this guy on our side or is he is he going to try to do his own thing and so he sends our heroes on to find out who this guy is and if he's on our side let's Let's get together, but if he's on his own, I want you to kill him. So the the brothers go in, and then that's how we find out and we learn about Jesus and his disciples. And as our guys kind of become their 
undercover assassins, so to speak. Um, but then they're they're thrown for a loop, obviously, and um, a lot of changes take place in their lives that are just fascinating. So, yeah, I think people will love it. And I've got romance, a little bit of romance in there. Um, a little bit about some fascinating, a fascinating story about line about Mary Magdalene. Uh, the tradition of Mary Magdalene is that she was a prostitute, right? But Correct. guess what? There's no biblical indication that she was a prostitute. That's Christian tradition. Right. It may be right and it, it may be wrong. But I always said to myself, why? how could she have seven demons in her, right? Jesus, ca- the Bible says Jesus cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. I thought there's got to be something <clears throat> she's doing more specific to get those demons in her. And so... I came up with a storyline of Mary Magdalene that's much more occultic and has uh, brings in a fascinating dimension that allows us to see the spiritual world through the eyes of this spiritually sensitive medium um, who ends up being Mary Magdalene. So, you know, um, people are going to really find uh, this is the gospel retold like you've never heard it before. But I would argue it's completely biblical. It's just that I'm showing the spiritual reality that you don't normally get. And that's, that's, what, that's what makes me um, pretty, you know, I'm pretty confident and proud about this one. I, I think that people will really find it helpful and fascinating and fresh. Makes the Gospels yeah. come alive. Well, that sounds exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to read it. So, well, Brian, I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, we always enjoy having you. Um, Likewise. The, 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 the context of the stories are right up our alley <laughs> and, uh, and they're fun reads and, uh, you're just a fun guy to talk to. So well, you're, thanks for you're, having me on, man. You're an easy interview. <laughs> Great. All right, brother. Well, thanks a lot for being here and, uh, hopefully we'll have you on again sometime. All right. Thanks again. All right. God bless. The Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network, using new media and social networking to go into all the world and proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more or to partner with us, visit us at gctnetwork.com. Sign up to our newsletter there. Stay up to date on the latest from all of our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema. There are several ways you can contact us and leave us feedback. Send us email to theonauts at gctnetwork.com. Call us on our voicemail line at 972-885-7270. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher. And don't forget to leave us comments there and rate us. Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Theonauts. Follow us on Instagram at Theonauts. Don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's Word with us. All right, Brian, thanks a lot for being here, brother. You have a great day. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. You are tuned in to the GCT Network. This is your Great Commission. This is your Great Commission Transmission. At GCTNetwork.com.